So this morning, as I say, we shall be considering Luke chapter 1, verses 1 to 25. So let us hear the word of the Lord. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I am an old man. And my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place. Because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them, and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived... And for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. Well, I imagine some of you are quite excited 
about the approach of Christmas, boys and girls. I bet you're looking forward with great excitement to Christmas, aren't you? And I reckon probably most of you adults are as well. We we all know, don't we, what it's like to anticipate something. We all know what it's like to look forward to something with a mounting sense of excitement, whether that be Christmas or, or something else. And this uh, opening chapter in Luke's Gospel depicts an atmosphere of anticipation. That's what we, we have depicted here uh, in Luke, especially in Luke chapter 1. We have an atmosphere of, of eager anticipation, an atmosphere of mounting excitement. And Luke uh, wonderfully portrays this atmosphere by, by describing those events that immediately preceded the coming of the Lord Jesus into the world, whose, whose coming was, of course, the, the thing that God's people were so eagerly anticipating. For, for centuries they had been eagerly anticipating and expecting the coming of the Messiah that God had promised to send to them. And this morning, I, I hope that we will enter into at least something of the, of the excitement and anticipation of our passage and I I hope that we will enter into it at least to some extent this morning as we as we see our passage containing a message that is true a message that is good but also a message that can be hard to believe those are the three things I want to look at this morning with you a message that is true, a message that is good, but also a message that can be hard to believe. First of all, then, we have a message here in Luke chapter 1 that is true. Luke introduces his gospel by, by noting that, that many people have, have written already about what happened uh, during the days of, of Jesus. They've written about those things as Luke uh, puts it in verse 1, that have been accomplished among us, the, the words and the mighty deeds of Jesus, his death and his resurrection in particular, and such writers included, of course, the inner circle of Jesus' uh, disciples, those, those apostles who were, from the very beginning, eyewitnesses of what Jesus uh, said and did and who as ministers, as servants of the word of Jesus, delivered to people like Luke a record, a written record of what they had witnessed. And so uh, from, from quite early on, there was a uh, written tradition regarding the person of Jesus Christ. And Luke, as he goes on to uh, say in verse decided to add his own account, his own orderly account 
to that written tradition. He says in verse 3, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent uh, Theophilus. Now here we see Luke highlighting the, the very careful uh, historical research that he undertook in order to write his gospel, in order to uh, compile, as he puts it, an orderly account of the things of Jesus Christ. And we, we see in this verse that Luke wrote it in particular for this man, Theophilus. We don't know much about Theophilus. Clearly, he was a man of some uh, importance, given that Luke addresses him as most excellent Theophilus. It's, it's possible, if not probable, that Theophilus was Luke's patron that he would be the one who would help him to publish his his orderly account. And we see as we go on into verse 4 that Luke wrote his, his gospel uh, for Theophilus so that Theophilus, as he puts it, may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. Now, Theophilus, it seems, had had been taught about... Jesus, about what Jesus said and did, about the the great deeds of the Lord Jesus. Theophilus, we might say, had been catechized in Christian truth, but but perhaps he wasn't as yet a convinced believer. Or perhaps he was a believer, but he just had lots of uh, questions. Whatever the case, Luke wants Theophilus to be certain about Jesus. He wants him to be certain about what Jesus said and did, about who who Jesus is. He wants Theophilus to be certain that Christianity is true. And that's why Luke decided to write his gospel. That's why, right at the very beginning of his gospel, Luke makes a point of noting that he has received a record about Jesus from eyewitnesses of Jesus, from those who were actually there with Jesus for, for the three years that he was, he was ministering. And he also, Luke, makes a point of stressing the fact that he himself had followed all things closely. He had undertaken his own uh, investigations, his own research as a good historian would. And, and so what Luke is saying here to Theophilus is this. He's saying, you can trust that what I'm writing to you in my orderly account is true. You can trust that everything that I, I've written to you is, is based on fact. It's not fiction. My gospel is not an enjoyable piece of, of fiction. It, it is, it's hopefully enjoyable, but it is an accurate historical record. And therefore, you can be certain of its truth. You can, you can stand on the certainty, the reliability, the trustworthiness of what I've written to you. And it seems to me this is such an, an important and such an encouraging lesson for us as 21st century believers to take to heart because isn't it the case that today 
In the Western world, we live in an age of what's sometimes called fake news. We live uh, in an age when people talk about your truth and and my truth, as though there is no such thing really as objective truth or objective fact. That, that's the kind of world, I think, that we live in today. And And one of the very damaging consequences of such relativism is that it can be so extremely unsettling. It can be very, very unsettling. It can make you very suspicious of, of anything, really, that you, that you read about or that you hear about. It can make you a very cynical person, really unwilling, unwilling to trust anyone, unwilling to believe anything apart, perhaps, from, from yourself. And I believe that any, any such society, a sort of post-truth society, we might say, is at heart a very unstable and actually a very dangerous place in which to live. That, that's, that's increasingly, isn't it, the kind of world that we inhabit. And, and in such uh, an unsettling and unstable and dangerous world, you need to know, brothers and sisters, that, that you can stand securely as Christians. That as Christians, you can have absolute certainty in a world that's marked by so much uncertainty. Because God, through his servants like Luke, has given to you a true and an accurate account of the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And this is not to say, of course, that you, you won't at, time have, at times have questions. Of course you will. And this is not to say that, that you won't also at times experience doubts. Often Christians do. But it is to say that, that just as, as Luke wrote his gospel so that Theophilus would have certainty, so God has given you the whole of his word, the whole Bible, in order to give you certainty, in order to make you sure, uh, certain and stable Christians. You can have certainty, brothers and sisters, because what God has caused to be written down in the scriptures about the Lord Jesus is true. It is objectively true. And it's also good my second point we have not only a message that is true but also wonderfully a message that is at its heart so very good now in verses five to seven luke uh, introduces us to this uh, godly couple zechariah and elizabeth and they are both Described as being righteous and blameless, they follow the law of the Lord. They are faithful covenant servants, we might say. They're good people, but they're also childless. And this must have been a, a source, as you can well imagine, of much pain for them both, as well as a, a certain amount of shame, given what Elizabeth says in verse 25. So we have a, a couple that are righteous and blameless, but also marked by deep pain and sadness. But then into, 
into their sadness, God speaks and God acts. Zechariah, being a priest, he's in the temple one day and he's uh, burning incense as priests would do in those days. And then all of a sudden, when he's in the temple, in the holy place, an angel of the Lord appears to him. And at first, Zechariah is absolutely terrified, which, which is, I think, pretty much always the response of anyone in the Bible who sees an angel there. Their first response, pretty much always, I think, is one of fear and terror. Angels are, are great, mighty, blazing creatures. But then the angel goes on to assure uh, Zechariah that he doesn't need to be afraid. Why? Because... The angel has come to him with good news. He's come to him with with the wonderful news that he, Zechariah, and his wife, Elizabeth, they're going to have a son. They're going to have a baby boy, and they're going to call him John. And and, and therefore, this this childless couple who have for, for many, many years been marked by deep pain and sadness, they will now experience the joy and the gladness of having their own baby boy but not only will they rejoice and be glad so too the angel says in verse 14 will many rejoice at the birth of uh, their baby boy John because as the angel says he will be great before the Lord this baby will be great before the Lord He will be greatly used and he will be greatly favored and greatly blessed by the Lord. And and part of John's greatness will involve him being set apart by the Lord for uh, some special work. And and his being set apart, sanctified by the Lord for for some special work that is signified by the fact that John will not uh, will not drink wine or or any strong drink and in addition to that John will be empowered for the special work that the Lord uh, will give him to do he will be empowered by the holy spirit with whom John will be filled even from his mother's womb. John will not be filled, we might say, with with strong drink. Rather, John will be filled, even from his conception, with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who will control and direct John in all that uh, he uh, says and does. And what is what is this great work that John uh, will do in the power of the Spirit? Well, the angel tells Zechariah what this great work will be in verses 16 and 17. He goes on to say to him that he, John, will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Now the The key word in these two verses is the word turn. That's what John is is going to do. 
He is going to make people turn. And of course, by that is meant he's, he's going to, by his, his preaching, his ministry, he's going to cause people to, to repent. John, John will be great because he will, he will turn people who have drifted away and wandered away from the Lord. He will, by his ministry, cause them to turn back to the Lord and, and, and restore them to the Lord. And he won't just do that in terms of their relationship with God, although that is the most important relationship, of course. But he will also cause people to turn back to one another. He will, he will bring about restoration and reconciliation within, uh, within families. That's what John, that's, this is the great work that John uh, is going to do. He is, he is going to cause people to repent of their sins and to receive the forgiveness uh, that they need. He's going to effect both vertical reconciliation and also horizontal reconciliation. Reconciliation between God and man and between human beings. This, this is going to be the great work that, that God has set John apart for and will empower him to do by the Holy Spirit. And his great work is going to bring great joy to many people. This is why the people will rejoice Not just because it's nice when a baby is born, but because of the great work that this baby, when he's older, is going to do. He's going to cause people to turn back to the Lord and turn back to one another and to know the joy of being in reconciled and restored relationships. And this this great work of John's was, of course, foreshadowed in, in the Old Testament. The angel says that John is going to minister in... Uh, the spirit and the power of Elijah. And what he's saying here is that just as Elijah preached repentance to the people of Israel in the Old Testament and, and, and preached powerfully by, by the Holy Spirit, so, so too that is what John, John is going to do. John is going to come you see, as a, as a second Elijah. He's going to come as a, another Elijah in fulfillment of, of the prophecy that we read about earlier on in Malachi chapter 4. John, John is the fulfillment of that prophetic revelation. And so his work was, was foreshadowed uh, in the Old Testament. But, but you see, as well as fulfilling those Old Testament foreshadowings, John's ministry itself will also be a foreshadowing. John's ministry will be a foreshadowing of of something, of someone so much greater. This is why the angel tells Zechariah again in an allusion to the prophecy of Malachi that John will, right at the end of verse 17, make ready for the Lord a people prepared. This is what John's going to do. He's going to get people ready for Jesus. His, his ministry will be a preparatory ministry as he, as he preaches repentance, as he baptizes with a baptism of repentance. So he will get 
people ready for the coming of the Lord. And then when the Lord himself comes, then there will be true and everlasting joy. I suppose, here's a little illustration, see what you think of this. I I think we could liken John and his ministry to Christmas Eve. The whole of the Old Testament, that's, that's the rest of the year leading up to Christmas when there is a sort of mounting preparation for and a mounting anticipation of December the 25th. And if you don't like December the 25th, you'll just have to go with me here and pretend that you do. But, but Christmas Eve, Christmas Eve is, is of course, that day when that, that sense of excited anticipation is at its height. Uh, all the presents have hopefully been bought and wrapped and they've been put under the, under the tree that the food has been bought. Uh, the, the stockings have been put out. Yeah, everything, everything is ready. You, you are ready, I hope, by Christmas Eve. Ready uh, to enjoy the joy of the next day. And, and that is, that is what John and his ministry were like. Finally, you see, finally, after years of eager anticipation, 2,000 years plus, finally, after those long years of, of waiting and of eager anticipation, now, with John, the people are, as it were, at the eve of Jesus' coming. Everything is, is ready. Ready for that great day when the Lord himself arrives. And of course, when that day does finally arrive, the joy of that day will far surpass even the joy of the day before. And what, what you need to understand, brothers and sisters, this morning, is that you live in the day of fulfillment. As Christians, if I can put it this way, we live on December the 25th not on December the 24th. That's where we're located. That's where we're living. That day of excited anticipation with John, that's, that's now given way to the day when that anticipation has been fully fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. And of course, it's through Jesus that the true, lasting, eternal reconciliation between God and man and reconciliation between human beings, between Jews and Gentiles, it's through Jesus that that reconciliation has finally and forever been effected. And so, don't you rejoice with great joy at the coming of Jesus into this world? It is a day of great joy, of great gladness. Aren't, aren't you glad that Jesus has now actually come? You may have, in fact, you probably will have very, very good reason to sorrow in this life, just as Zechariah and Elizabeth had very good reason to sorrow. And it, and it could well be that some of you here this morning are full of pain 
full of pain, perhaps even feeling the the sting of shame for some reason. And as we were thinking about just in the last few weeks in our short series in Lamentations, it's right for, for you as a Christian to lament. But even as you do lament, even as you do sorrow, at the same time, simultaneous with that sorrow and with that lament, you, you rejoice, don't you? And you rejoice because Jesus has come. And there's no, no better person. There's, there's nothing better, no one better than Jesus himself. He, he's good. That's why the gospel, the message is so good, because it, it's a message about, about Jesus. And he is altogether good and altogether lovely. And he is the one who who saves us and who brings us into fellowship with God. And so as Christians, we have a message that is true. And we also have a message that is good. But we have a message that is often hard to believe. Zechariah can't believe what the angel has told him literally he can't believe it he can't believe that he and his wife who are now well advanced in years they're very old they can't, he can't believe that they could ever have a baby this this good news that the angel who now identifies himself as gabriel has brought to him from god is is for zechariah just too good to be true it's too good to be true he cannot bring himself to believe the angel's words and as a result zechariah is is chastened chastened for his unbelief by being made mute uh, for 6 months now who was zechariah we told in verse 6 a godly man a righteous man a blameless man he wasn't some kind of wicked, unfaithful covenant servant of the Lord. No, he, he was righteous. He was blameless. But he wasn't sinless. And instead of believing God's word, incredible as it seemed, Zechariah chose instead to believe, I suppose we could say, what nature what his body told him. And the result was that he, he actually missed out on the, on the joy of, of telling people uh, the good news that he had heard for, for six months. And I, I can well imagine, in fact, I'm pretty certain that some of you here this morning sometimes say something like this to yourself. You say, well, this, this gospel, this good news that I I read about and I I hear about in the Bible. Is it just too good to be true? Is it really true that God actually loves me? That's what the Bible says. The Bible says God loves, but is it, does he really love me? Is it really true that Jesus' death has paid for all of my sins. 
that, that I'm no longer condemned and guilty before God. That he has forgiven me and said that I'm righteous in his, in his sight. Is that really true? Is it really true that one day I'm, I'm going to be raised up from the grave and given a resurrection body that will never perish, that will never corrupt, that will never die, but I'll, I'll live forever with God and with all of God's people in the new heavens and the new earth? Is, is, is it really true or is it just a bit too good to be true? Sometimes, even for the godliest of people, even for the godliest of people, it can be hard to believe. Not, of course, because there's anything wrong with the message, but, of, of course, because there's a lot wrong with us. Even if we are very godly people, the, the sin of unbelief continues to infect our hearts. And I want to say to you this morning that if you do sometimes find it hard to believe, well, can I make just one suggestion? There's lots of things I suppose I I, I could suggest, but let me just make one suggestion to you. If you do sometimes find yourself saying, is it just too good to be true? I would say this, just listen. Just listen to God's word. Just, Just listen to the Bible. Listen to the Bible being read, being preached. Read it for yourself and, 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 and just listen to it. Don't, don't talk. We spend in our world, in our culture, far too much time talking. Being encouraged to air our views, which are usually rubbish. We just need to listen. To keep quiet and listen. Zechariah couldn't speak for six months. He was forced just to listen. And that was extremely good for him. That was extremely good for him. During that time of just listening and not saying a word, Zechariah, as I think we see later on in in Luke chapter 1, grew strong in his faith. Because you see, it's as you just listen, as you sit under the word of God and just listen to it, as you shut your mouth and open your ears, that's when your faith grows stronger. And you become increasingly convinced that the gospel is so good because God is so good. And the gospel is so true because God is so true. Well, our passage ends with Elizabeth conceiving. Verse 24, just as the angel said she would. And so to the miraculous pregnancies of other women in the Bible, like Sarah and Rebecca and Rachel and Hannah, to their miraculous pregnancies can be added Elizabeth's. God was pleased to bring life from these women's barren wombs and perhaps he was pleased to work in that way in order to give a most vivid illustration of what he would do through his son who is of course the greatest 
miracle child, how he, through his son, is pleased, so very pleased, to give life to dead sinners. That's, that's the gospel. That in so many ways is what the gospel is all about. It's all about God in his grace sending his son into the world in order to save sinners, to give life to dead, undeserving sinners. And if you're here this morning and he's done that for you, then surely like Elizabeth, you can say that God has looked on you He has looked on you in his grace and he has taken away your reproach. Your reproach, not of childlessness, but your reproach of sinfulness. Can you say that this morning? Can you say the Lord has looked on me, on poor, miserable me? The Lord, for some reason, has looked on me and in his wonderful grace and through his son, he's taken away all of my sin. And all of the shame associated with it. If you can say that this morning, and I hope you can, then give thanks to God. Praise God. Praise God that 2,000 years ago, Jesus came into this world, the greatest miracle child, the one to whom John looked forward. And he came into this world to save you, to give you life, everlasting life. And praise God as well, that one day Jesus will come back for you and he will bring to completion his salvation. The people at the beginning of Luke's gospel, they were, they were waiting. They were waiting in eager anticipation for the coming of the Lord. And so too are we, aren't we? Today, we are waiting. Waiting not for Jesus' first coming, but for his second. And we rejoice in the knowledge that one day, when I don't know, but one day, our eager anticipation will be fully realized. Amen.